Oh, things are getting passed around. The kids are going out. I'm going to have you guys open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to get back into this uh, sermon series. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll go ahead and close this door. So I guess before I go into the sermon, I just want to once again just say thank you to, to everyone that was able to make it last week. Jelaine and I had a great time having people at our house. Um, as we were walking around the backyard throughout the week, though, we did notice there was like certain scents in the backyard and all that can't apologize for yeah i can't apologize for that but i guess i'll apologize for that but we have dogs and also little children that tend to like to relieve themselves in the backyard so um that'd be dex so anyways anyways we had a great time having you guys over um people said that they enjoyed it the food was amazing as well and um, it's just a, a great time of fellowship and feasting with you guys so um, i truly appreciate it but um, and Jelaine, thank you for hitting on what you did regarding baptism. Once again, um, we just really emphasize and uh, encourage you guys to come to Jelaine and I, even if you just have questions. Let's say you don't even plan on being baptized. You just want to discuss it or talk about it a little bit more in depth. You guys can always come and see my wife or I, and we will uh, just, we are more than open to just sitting down and, and having that conversation with you guys. So, um, but going into Ecclesiastes, we're going to go back into the sermon series. We are in chapter 5. If you guys remember and recall just kind of the theme and context of this book, the author, the preacher, many people assuming it to be Solomon, really just hitting on the, the, the push and pulls of life, um, coming to this understanding and this realization, as I've said, kind of the starting line of life at the finish line of his own life, coming to the end of things, realizing really what matters in life, and that is fearing the Lord. Um, a practicality to the book that many of us, as I've been preaching through it, I see a lot of heads nodding, like yes, like almost like we can relate to many of the things that the author is speaking about. Um, it's a book that, that should edify us. It's a book that should remind us, especially as Christians as well, where our disposition needs to be, where our focus needs to be, and that is just this fear of the Lord, this respect and reverence for his name. Um, but Solomon is going to go into something here in chapter 5 that's really going to kind of convict us. And we see kind of this alignment, as we're going to see in the opening part of the chapter, in regards to the temple and their gathering, in regards to the worship component. And I'm going to challenge your guys' hearts as well, maybe, in the motive behind why we come to church and why we gather. So often we can get caught up in thinking that God's up there in heaven, right, with this little notepad and paper, and he's doing these check marks by our name every time we show up to church, right, checking our attendance. And I'm here to tell you that God isn't one to check our attendance, but he is one to check our motives for why we do what we do, right? As we just prayed over the offering and stuff like that, we always say to give out of a place of joy, not that out of compulsion. The motive behind the things that we do is imperative as Christians. And that really begins with just this underlying reverence for the Lord. Okay? So he's going to go in here in chapter 5, verse 1. And once again, I'm going to be preaching out of the NIV. I will do my best to kind of give a little bit more exposition if there's other translations that I 
um, feel like hit a little bit more closer to home in what's being said in the text. But in chapter 5, verse 1, it starts out here, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, making reference here to the temple. Go near to listen, rather to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Now, what is the author speaking about here? Okay, and in some translations, the, the word wrong actually says evil. I like to hold firm to that because I really think it emphasizes the importance here of what the author's saying. These sacrifice of fools are pretty much just going into the temple with this mundane, lackadaisy mentality. We just go because it's just simply what we're supposed to do. Now, you guys can raise your hands if you really want to be bold and honest. I'm asking for it, especially if you were raised in the church, maybe in your younger days, maybe even now. You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you have kind of fallen into this sometimes where you just go to church because it's just simply what you do on Sunday? I did. But you don't anymore? I like to now. You like to now. Okay. We've all, we've all been there to an extent. Maybe some of us haven't, okay? We go because we're just simply supposed to do it. There really is no motive checking behind what it is. It's just like this automatic thing. Like Sunday rolls around and what do we do on Sunday? We get up in the morning and we go to church, right? We put on, as they say, our Sunday's best. We show up. We know what's going to happen. There's going to be three songs played in the beginning of service. There's probably going to be coffee in the back. The pastor's going to give a message, right? And then we go home, we strip off our Sunday's best, we put on our Sunday's lazy, we sit around and watch Netflix or do whatever it is that we do on Sunday, right? Just this mundane thing that we can develop about Sundays. Well, the author here is speaking about the same thing that can take place, especially back when we were looking at the Jews and them going to the temple. There wasn't this understanding or this reverence for the God of creation. They just simply went to the temple to do what it is that they do at the temple right and he goes on here to say do not be quick with your mouth do not be hasty in your heart do not utter anything before god god is in heaven and you are on earth so he's making kind of this analogy here for us to just remember and focus on the holiness of god that he is god and we are not right that he is in heaven and we are the the creatures here on earth so let your words be few. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, where he's speaking about the way that we should uphold ourselves as children of God, right? When you go and you pray, how are we supposed to pray, he says. Don't do it like the hypocrites do where everyone sees us praying, right? Imagine me going out in the busiest place of town and I stand on this little pedestal and I want everyone in cold water to see me praying. And I do it with all these words and I, I do it with this 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 sense of vibrance and people are looking and they're like, man, Josh really must be a guy that loves Jesus Christ. Look at how he's praying. Look how awesome he looks. Jesus is speaking about this, right? Not to let that be the motive behind what you are doing. Now, does this mean that if you pray in lengthy terms that this is a bad thing? It is not. But what the emphasis that's being put on here is, is that God doesn't look at our prayers and think that there needs to be a certain amount of time that we need to pray for that prayer to be valid. How many of you guys criticize yourselves for the way that you pray? Right? You start praying on something and then you start thinking about something else and you easily wander off into a whole nother... T I see people smiling at me now because maybe you just did it this morning. Right? We can easily do this. We sit down and we pray. Jelaine and I, we can stand up here as well and pray for you guys. And in my brain, I could easily just get caught up in thinking that, man, 
I got to keep this going because I want people to think like, you know, I mean, I don't do that, but I could easily do that within the flesh of myself. Or we have to pray more and more and more. So we right. Right. And this is something that, yeah, this is something that the author is really wanting us to hit on. He's wanting us to realize, and know, like your prayers, they don't need to be lofty in words. They don't need to be fancy words either. And it doesn't need to be this amazing speech that we give when we pray, right? Just talk to your Father in heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you have now that privilege to be able to communicate with him. Well, guess what? Back then, these individuals were going in and they were, in a sense, just speaking these prayers just with lofty words and all that. Solomon's sitting there saying, this is the sacrifice of fools. They're coming in with wrong motives and they're coming in with a bunch of words that they shouldn't be speaking. Okay? And once again, as he's saying too, to not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God as well. We can do this. Do we stop sometimes and even think about the things that we're speaking to God? Like this is something that I think is important as well. And he's going to go on to even explain why this is important. And I was speaking to my wife about this this week and she looked at me and she's like, man, we know a lot of people that can do this and maybe we've even been guilty of it as well. He goes on here in verse 3, and I'm going to unpack this because this is a big one. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. What does he mean by that? Well, I can tell you that how many of you have ever had kids where you sit there and you say, or maybe yourself, you can check yourself and go, I probably shouldn't watch this certain thing before I go to bed because I know when I go to bed, I'm probably going to have nightmares about it when I sleep, right? This is the same thing that takes place when we are even going throughout our days, maybe watching certain things on the news, watching certain things in our everyday life, where we are viewing something and spectating it. And then all of a sudden at night when we lay down and we sleep, we then dream about it. But the problem that I think we run into, especially in the church today, is as many people want to stop and assume that these dreams come from what or who? That they come from the Lord. I really want people to stop and check themselves on this because this is why I think we've, we've given way to a lot of individuals that will speak about visions and dreams that they get from God that really are not edifying to the church whatsoever. They, in a sense, just kind of either strike up this sense of fear or they're these good tides that are spoken about. I've told you guys this before. If I watch Jaws all day and I go to bed, chances are I'm going to be dreaming about a shark attacking me. And I could easily wake up and sit there and go, God told me not to go to the beach. He showed me this in a dream because I got my leg bitten off by a shark, right? But wait a minute, what were you watching all day? Now I got to be as bold and forthright as a pastor to put you folks on blast maybe that are inundated with the media that we see in the world today, right? If you watch the news all the time, I'm not sitting there saying that you can't watch it. Right? I'm not going to stand up here as a pastor and demonize it. What I can sit up here and say is that I do believe that people are inundated with the things of the world because of the media that is constantly being put in front of our face. Amen or ouch, right? This is, this is truth. And we could so easily sidestep it and think that we're in a sense getting informed on certain things when in actuality our spirits are getting dampered and they're getting damaged by what it is that we're viewing and we're watching. Our focus at the end of the day, church, needs to be on Jesus Christ. And I truly believe that he gives those people that are called his discernment and wisdom of the times and the things that they need to know, even the things that they're called to pull and to focus on. 
But guys, I can't sidestep the fact that a lot of people, especially Christians these days, have had their peace robbed of them because they are convinced that they are convinced that they have to know everything that's going on under the sun. And what is Solomon saying to us in this book? That there's nothing new. At the end of the day, there's really nothing new that's happening or going on. So why is your focus on these things so much? To the point where it even disrupts our dreams. To the point where then we go, well, God's telling me this stuff in a dream. I believe that God will give people dreams and visions of the things that they're called to know. But these are dreams and visions that will be edifying to the body, right? These are things that aren't going to be necessarily focused on just worldly things. They're going to be things that you need to know to help encourage you as a church body as well. But things that will bring you peace, too. And sometimes you can have a dream as a warning, which it would scare you. However, you have to be honest with yourself. Is this directly from the Lord, or is this what, is what I've been putting in my brain? Right, right. A lot of times that confusion can and I think a big determining factor that I pose on anyone that sits there and says, well, how do I know what's from God and what's not? Do you have peace in your life from what it is that you're seeing, what it is that you're watching or witnessing? And people can be so quick to sit there and go, yeah, I think I got peace. Well, here's a determining factor if you have peace. How are you treating those even around you in the midst of it? Right? And when we don't have peace about us, especially in a foundational uh, standpoint, we tend to be a little bit more bitey with people. We tend to be a little bit more on edge, right? There isn't this sense of we're wanting to do things to fulfill God's will or glory. It's more so about kind of self-preservation. Like God's telling me this so I know this to keep me and mine safe. That's not being a Christian. That's not. But the enemy's slick. He'll deceive you. He'll make the world so loud, which guys, the world these days is very loud. It is extremely loud, right? With everything that we have coming at us, it makes even what I'm preaching today seem much more irrelevant to a lot of people. This has never changed. The world has never, in a sense, changed. But the world does seem to be getting louder. And that is the challenge today that I think the church is facing. Do we want to bend with the world now and look like the world? Or do we want to stay holy and set apart for a purpose and a reason? And that's to give God glory in this fallen world. And man, what a struggle and what a challenge it is, right? Even for Christians to just try to not necessarily block out the noise, but to keep our focus on Christ in the midst of it. And we want to skew and twist the things of the world that are working their way into our spirit and even now attribute it like, oh, this is coming from God. But guys... An amazing thing that you can look at and evaluate is, is where is your peace in the midst of it? Where is it? If you're walking through life and you're always anxious, you're always scared, you're always angry, you're always upset, and you think God's doing this and God's doing that, guys, that's not from the Lord. It is not. It is from the enemy. It is from the devil. And he is taking advantage and exploiting the ways of your flesh to try to convince you that this is where your focus needs to be. Our focus always needs to be on Jesus Christ. We need to be in Scripture. We need to be in prayer. We need to be amongst each other in fellowship. That is vital, especially as the world just tends to get louder and louder. Amen? So, as we go on here, once again, verse 3. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. 
When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Now, there's a difference here between the word vow and a swear. Okay? We read throughout the epistles that Paul says that I swear, I'm not lying, and all of this. When you swear, you're swearing to try to bring in something to validate what it is that you're trying to convince someone of. Right? Like, Bentley, I swear. Like, I didn't eat your cookies. Right? Even though I probably did because they're amazing. But if I was to say that, like I would try to validate, right, to give just kind of this oomph to the statement that I'm making. But a vow is different. A vow is a promise, right? If you do this, Lord, I'll do this. See the difference? How many of us have done that before? Honestly. Lord, if you do this in my life, I will do this in return to show favor to you. That's a vow. We do this a lot, even as Christians. But what is the author here saying? What is Solomon sitting here saying? He goes, keep your vows that you make to God. But you got to be mighty because what, or, uh, you, have to be, you have to be mindful because what does he say here up in verse 2? Do not be quick with your mouth and do not be hasty in your heart. So when we find ourselves in these situations in life, maybe because we've put ourselves there based on dumb decisions, amen or ouch, or it's just because we live in a fallen creation, in a fallen world, that we're in this unfortunate situation. Our flesh will scream sometimes to make these vows that maybe we have no intentions of keeping with God. Right? So a great place for us to stop and put ourselves once again is to just stop and ask the Lord for peace. Ask the Lord for discernment before we even begin to speak to Him what it is that we need. Because first and foremost, all of us need peace, right? And if you don't have peace about you, your prayers are going to be kind of goofy. And I can attest to that as well, right? We find ourselves in these situations. Lord, if you just give me this job, I'm going to do this for you. Lord, if you just fix this for me, my marriage, I will make sure that I do this for you. I've heard even soldiers sit there and say that when they were in a situation in war, Lord, if you deliver me from this, I'll make sure that I dedicate my life to you in this. But guess what happens in a lot of these situations? They don't fulfill that vow. They don't. It's in the midst of whatever's going on, they get hasty in their heart. They get quick with their mouth. Solomon's wanting us to stop. He's wanting us to sit here and say, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. And this word fool is heavy. We might use it in a way that's kind of mundane in our culture, but this is a word that had a lot of weight to it. Like you didn't just call someone a fool back in the Lord's day or back in, in this time where Solomon's preaching. Like you had, you had to really have a reason to call someone this. It was, a, it was a term that really a person could feel a weight or a burden from hearing it. He actually says it is better to not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So think of that. Think of that mindset. Like maybe our prayers not, don't need to be based around vows, this exchange or transmission between us and God, because the Lord knows I'm probably going to fail at keeping this vow. But Lord, I just need you to give me peace, wisdom, and discernment in the midst of this. I trust that you're going to see me through it and guide me in the process. Guide me in the process, right? Search my heart. Beautiful Psalm, right? Satisfy me with your love. Let today be a day where your love is all that matters in my life. 
because it seems like previously my life has been focused around other things that I'm thinking is going to bring me fulfillment. And it leads me to these places of disappointment, which puts my heart in a place of discontentment, which then puts me in a place of haste to where I'm just spurting stuff up to you that I have no intentions on keeping. And what a burden, right? When we even think back to those times where we're like, man, I remember I promised God that if he'd do this for me, I'd go to church more, only to make it three weeks and stop going to church. Then all of a sudden you feel the weight of that, do you not? Then you just start feeling like you're this horrible Christian that God doesn't love and all. No, that's not our God in heaven. He's just saying, don't make these vows that you can't fulfill. Pray to your Father in heaven, but if anything, just step back and be mindful of the vows that, that you, uh, you make so in case you can't keep it, whatever. He goes on to say in verse 6, Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. This is a biggie, right? So, the, the temple messenger here, in some translations it says angel, I believe this to mean the priest. Now, because I'm looking at context, this is taking place in the temple. If you guys, you can write this down to where I believe this says priest. If you put down Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, you will see in that statement where the word messenger or angel is being used to describe the priest of the temple. Okay, So if you want to fact check me on that, please do so. If someone has a, another uh, context to that, they're more than welcome to come see me after service. But I believe the messenger means priest. But what is he saying here? My vow was a mistake. I told my wife we could easily do this once again in the church, but obviously this is something that was taking place too, where we would look at people and go, oh, I was just kidding. Like, you know, I know I said that to God, but, you know, it was something to where I was, I was, I knew I wasn't going to be able to keep it, so I was just messing around. I, I didn't, I didn't mean what I said. It was a mistake. Solomon's sitting here saying, like, don't do that with your God in heaven either, with your Father in heaven. Don't sit there and just be so quick to say something just to try to take it back later on and just say it was a mistake haphazardly. Like, we have to be mindful in that speech. We have to be mindful in that motive as well as we, as we uh, speak to our Father in heaven. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Once again, this is some pretty, some pretty powerful stuff. God would actually destroy, as these individuals see, the work of their hands, the things that they would do. If they would go into the temple and they would just haphazardly speak to God, they would haphazardly talk to him and make vows that they couldn't keep, that God would actually have a punishment for that. He would discipline them in that aspect as well. So we have to think about that. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Or meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Once again, it's just that re-emphasis of what was spoken about in verse 3. Being mindful of the things that we put in front of our eyes, being mindful of our cares in life because we tend to dream about the very things that our focus is on throughout our days. We just do. And we have to be mindful too in saying that we're aligning that with God. Like he's trying to even communicate with us through our dreams. Maybe if anything, he's just simply trying to show us that our cares are in places they don't need to be at. Right? Verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. So once again, speaking about this sense that there is injustice in the world, there are things going on in this world that we've witnessed and seen throughout the generations where there's going to be the oppressed and then there's going to be the oppressors. Okay, For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are, higher, or both are others higher still. 
The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now this text, they really don't have a, a true understanding of what it means from what I believe and what I've read in different commentaries. Is This is just simply saying that the land is going to profit or yield a crop and that the king receives a huge chunk of that profit of, of the crop. Okay, But he goes on here in verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. And that's the focus. Whoever loves money never has enough. And this is big. Once again, this goes back to what we were speaking about in earlier chapters with our culture, right? We live in this dog-eat-dog -dog world. We live in this rat race culture where we feel like we have to accomplish and attain all these things to find a sense of fulfillment and happiness. The problem is, is when we love money and we pursue money, we never get enough of it. Amen. This is stuff that people, you guys have probably witnessed. Maybe you guys have even participated in this mindset. I just feel like I need more of this. But guess what? You're never going to have enough of it. You're never going to have enough. If your love and contentment isn't towards Christ first, everything else outside of that, you're going to just keep, you're going to keep chasing after the wind. You're never going to grab a hold of that sense of contentment. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. A lot of rich people will sit there and say amen to this. The more money they seem to make, the more friends all of a sudden that pop up overnight. Amen? You guys have seen this. It's like if one of us win the lottery and everyone in the church knows about it or everyone in Coldwater knows, man, I didn't realize or remember that I had this many friends before I won the lottery. Right? It's the practicality here that, that the author's speaking about. So as goods increase, so do those who consume them. More people are going to want to come around and they're going to want to consume the goods that it is that we get. And what benefits are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? So this one pretty much just has a, a understanding or a layout that basically says, let's say if you're a farmer, you buy stuff and you get things to amass this sense of wealth to continue to feed into the wealth that you're striving for and that you want, you have to go out and buy more stuff to make your business continue to prosper. Am I wrong in that assessment? Like this is what happens. So I love money, I love wealth, I love things. So I get stuff, I'm amassing wealth, my business is growing, I have to go out and buy more stuff to keep up with the business that I'm getting. But in the meanwhile, I'm still getting more wealth from it. And at the end, this can be extremely exhausting. If you're a business owner in here, maybe you can attest to this. It's like I can never rest because all I'm thinking about is how I have to keep this afloat, right? There's never a satisfaction that comes with it. But he goes on here to say in verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or they eat much. And this is out of Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what does that mean? Well, I put it up on Facebook this week for any of you guys that dared to look at it. A few people did, right? That means I can be calm in adversity, and I can be humble in prosperity. Amen? This is what it means to be a Christian. So when poo-poo hits the fan, Christ is my peace. So guess what? I can be calm, right? He has a love that casts out fear. But if he does bless me with stuff because my heart is for him, I can be humble in that worldly prosperity. I know that he gave it to me, so guess what? He has every right to take it away, as I've said. Is this making sense to you guys? So he's wanting us to know this, that the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or they eat much. 
I go to work, I work, I come home, and guess where work's at? It's at work. And I'm home, so guess where I'm at? I'm home. And when I go to bed, guess where work's at? It's still at work. But for some of us, many of us, especially men, where does work tend to lie? Up here. We can't get rid of it. We can't let go of it. And why does it stick in our brain? Because we have all these things out there that we have to get. We have all these bills that we have to pay. We have more toys that we have to buy. So we're just sitting there plotting, scheming, all that stuff, and we can't sleep. Just a person that goes out and just works to work and is content, right? Calm in adversity, humble in prosperity, that person's sleep is very sweet, right? And Christ gives us that. But as for the rich, people that love money, love wealth, their abundance permits them no sleep, as I just went through and covered. Author says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that then they have children. There's nothing left for them to inherit. So the author's sitting here talking about two ways that really people that love riches and love wealth come to this sense of grief. Either they sit there and they go, I can't take this stuff with me when I die. They realize it. And I've been there with individuals and people that have had that realization upon the end of their life. What am I going to do with this stuff? I have no one to give it to. It's going to probably just get separated or pushed around to family that I barely know. Or they lose their wealth because of maybe a bad deal, right? A bad business investment. Regardless, guess what? You're not taking it with you when you leave. It can be here today, and where can it be tomorrow? Gone. Just like that. And you guys have seen this probably with celebrities, right? It's like one day they got everything, and then the next day, it's like they have nothing, right? Just in the midst of a day, a blink of an eye, they can lose their stuff. Why is that? Because things of this world are fleeting. They are not eternal. So if you put your hope and contentment in fleeting things that you think will bring you a sense of happiness, you're going to find out that they don't. We do this in our marriages, right? We think that sometimes if we amass certain things in our marriage, that our marriages will be better if we have cool things. My wife and I, we joke around all the time, right? Like we're like, oh, it'd be cool to have this. And Lord knows I would like to think we're pretty humble in the things that we want. We talk about like having a deck on the back of the house, just a deck, right? We just sit there, though, it would be awesome to have one. I know you're still like, I still want that deck. Like, it would be great, right? But at the end of the day, like, we have what we have, and are we content with that? But if, what if we just were like, babe, we're going to make a plan, and everything that we do in our days is going to be to pursue this deck, and we want this big, beautiful deck, and we're going to make sure that our finances are around here, here, and we just, we oh, sell the kids. we'd have to sell the kids, <laughs> which is illegal. So... But then all of a sudden we get the deck and then we stand back and we look at the deck and we're like, man, a pool would look great with that deck. So guess what? We have to pursue that new site. Like you could go on and on, right? In your life about things that you could just try to amass. Like, oh, wait, the car doesn't match the house. We need to get a new car or we need to paint the house, something, right? The kids don't match the house. Do we get rid of the kids or do we get new kids to match? Like these are things that we could easily do, right? If that is the focus of a marriage or a union, and it's not Christ, if it's not something or someone that brings you true peace and contentment, that marriage can crumble. And I've seen it. I've seen where married couples come together and there's this support, right, with one another. And well, they want to pursue this and they want to pursue that. And you're kind of putting bricks in each other's kingdom, right? You're building the walls up in each palace, right? 
all of a sudden there's a day where a decision has to be made on which palace you're going to stay in, which journey you're going to go to. We've worked hard to establish this kingdom. Well, we've worked hard to establish this one. Well, I don't want to give this one up because I really, well, I don't want to give this. It's all stuff. Or the people that stay together because if they do break up, what happens to their stuff? They got to get rid of it. So they stay together for the sake of stuff. Like all this is just heart-wrenching. It's exhausting, right? Where does a marriage need to be focused on? What does a marriage need to be focused on? You have two imperfect individuals pursuing the perfect God, being sanctified together, individually, but unified as well. Amen? So he goes on to sit here and say, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. If anyone wants to argue with me about verse 15, please see me after church. If you know of anyone that comes into this world not naked, or in a sense would leave naked unless someone dressed their body, I would like to know. This is a practicality and a truth of life. We come into this world one way, and guess what? We leave the very same way. Go ahead. No, you can't. No, I don't think so. Yes. How did you hear that, Joey? But this is, this is something that, once again, we have to stop and think about. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. We don't take anything with us when we die. Nothing. I don't care how hard you try. This is something that is, has been scientifically proven. It is something that has been practically proven. When you die, the things that you've amassed on this earth do not go with you. Okay? This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? So they're chasing after nothing. All their days they eat in darkness and with great frustration, affliction, and anger. There is this darkness that just looms over them. This lack of contentment where they're trying to find new mountaintops to conquer. How many of you know people like this? Where it's like nothing is ever enough. They've accomplished one thing and they got to move on to the other. And culture promotes this and says, man, these, this person's really determined. They're really... But inwardly, they have no peace. And I bring this up again, as I, as I like to say, people will sit there and they see celebrities that sadly commit suicide. In our viewpoint, we think they have everything, right? They have money, they have status, they have all these things. Well, wait a minute, why would they end their life? Because they realize after they've amassed everything that they really gain nothing. So at the end of the day, what is there that's left to get? And what a hopelessness, what a darkness to find themselves in, right? Like, I, I hear about it still with celebrities, athletes. They get all this money. They go out and they squander their money. They, they've had everything, literally, as the author says, at their disposal. They have people. They have pleasure, education, wisdom, money, and all that. And they throw it in this pot and they live it out for years to come and find out that it doesn't bring me any fulfillment. But I don't know this God in heaven, so therefore I don't know what else there is in this world, so therefore what reason is there to live? That's a darkness that looms over many people, especially in our culture. 
People need to know God. They need to fear the Lord and have a reverence for his name. Verse 18, this is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. So what is he saying to eat, drink, and to find satisfaction or to be merry? It is just another way of the author just simply saying, be content with whatever it is that you're doing in life. And how do you find that contentment? It is by knowing Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know what it's like to be well fed, and I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to have a lot, and I know what it's like to have a little. This is Paul's words. I've learned to be content. What does that mean? I've been through some stuff. I've experienced these things. And at the end of the day, I found that my only peace and contentment comes from knowing Jesus Christ. That everything else in my life means nothing compared to the surpassing grace and beauty and knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. What is the author sitting here saying thousands of years earlier? The same exact thing. Eat, drink, and be merry. Whatever it is you have, see the joy in that because you know God. He goes on in verse 19, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, or some translations say the gift, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. So you're telling me that God is the one who gives the gift and the ability to enjoy these things. Do you see that there, the little talk of sovereignty there? Like God is the one that actually disposes this ability or this gift for us to enjoy these things. So if I find myself not happy with what I got, if I find myself not happy with the job that I have, if I find myself not happy with the family that I have, like guys, this is language I hear in the church a lot. Like God's calling me to do something bigger and greater. I've heard people actually go to their spouses and sit there and say these things. Like, I don't know if God wants me to be in this. Like, I feel like he's calling me to go start and to do this. That's not God talking to you. That's the enemy. You have something inside of you that's desiring something more when your desire needs to be on Jesus Christ. You need to get down and repent and ask the Lord for the ability or the gift to enjoy what it is that you have in your life today. If it be your job, if it be your family, whatever, ask him for that gift because that's what it is. It is a gift to be able to enjoy the possessions, the wealth that you have, and you accept these things. These are your lot. This is the stuff that's been assigned to you. And you can actually find happiness in your toil as well. How awkward is that for us to say in our culture? You're telling me I can be happy at my job? You could be. You could actually be content in your work, right? Lord knows we hop around from job to job trying to find the perfect one, the right one. But if we hop around with the same heart of discontentment, guess what? You're always going to have a jerk that you work with. You're never going to make enough money. Your boss is always going to be a butthead. Like we got to stop and go, maybe it's this in me. Maybe I'm not asking for the contentment or the joy or the ability to enjoy these things the way that I should be. And I love this in closing. This could be a sermon all of itself. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God gives them, God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. 
we don't go through our lives as Christians constantly thinking about yesteryear. We don't. And I stop and I think about myself that this is a gift that God has given me as well, is that I don't wrestle too much with my past. I don't wrestle too much with what's happened. Like, I don't find myself in that space. Sitting in the backyard the other night and my wife's funny. She comes back. She's like, you didn't tell me you were coming back here. And I'm like, I just came back here. And she's like, I'm in the house yelling for you and you're in the backyard. And I'm like, just sitting in the backyard, listening to nothing. And what I found is a person that was in the world once and a person that's in Christ now is that there's a difference between silence and peace. And silence can be horrifying, horrifying for many people today. You go to bed at night and there's no noise. Maybe you just hear rain falling. Your thoughts get the best of you, right? You can't let go of the things of the world. But seldomly do we know anything about peace. Where we don't go to that space. Where we don't go and we wrestle with certain things. And I stop and I think about my life and I go, I've been through a lot. Many of the people in here have been through a lot. But because of the joy that I have today, my focus tends to be in today. My wife hears me say it all the time. What? Where are we supposed to live? Today. I always say it to the kids. Stay in today. I said it to Maverick when he went off to boot camp. He's going into the unknown, right? He's going into a place where it's going to be kind of chaotic and people screaming and yelling at his face and discipline, right? And, and order and making his bed a certain way and never doing anything right. He could easily put his brain into yesteryear when mom did things for him, a lot of things for him, and he had all this stuff prepared for him and he could be stressed about it. But if he finds himself content with today and enjoy in today, you tend not to allow your brain to wander on, on things of the past. And I feel like that that's one of the greatest gifts God has given me. I don't wrestle too much with the things of, of my past. I don't question a lot of things. I realize that God in His sovereignty allowed me to go through things that brought me to where I'm at today. And I thank Him for that. But I don't get lost in it. So as the author sits here and says once again in closing, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So as I sit in my backyard with the smell of poo-poo around me, wind's blowing, kids are in the house screaming, obviously my wife's yelling for me and I didn't hear, Lord knows I wouldn't ignore you. I find myself content in my chair because God is occupied. I didn't ignore you, I promise. I promise. I find myself occupied by what God's established in my heart. And that's joy. That means regardless of if it's raining, the sun's shining, God's love is constant. What he's done for me is constant. And it's a promise that I get to latch onto every day of my life. Regardless of what I go through as a Christian, I can always say it is well with my soul. Right? And that is what we need to have established in our heart as Christians. And when we do, we simply live in today. Lord, give me this day, this daily bread sustain me today and allow today to be satisfying for me because I know that you love me. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just give you thanks for this day. Lord, I give you thanks for your word. And Lord, I, I know these words speak to the hearts and the minds of many um, people that are here as well. I see it in their eyes. And these are words that people need to hear. Lord, these are words that people need to hear so they can come to you with a sense of, of honesty. Lord, even though you know our hearts, Lord, this is something that we all need to just grab a hold of. You know our hearts. You know the things that we're going to say before we say it, the things we're going to do before we do it. 
Lord, I pray that individuals, including myself, continue to just make it a practice to come to you with a humble and open heart, to come to you with, with repentance, Lord, of things in our life that don't honor you, Lord, things that pull us away from you as well, Lord Jesus. Lord, you are always sanctifying us. You are always working us, Lord, drawing us closer and closer to you. So I just pray that these words that are spoken today, that, that people see it as a way to come to you with this inventory of what's going on in them, to lay it down at you and say, this is what I got. This is where I'm at. Lord, remove the things that you need to remove from my life, from my heart, to allow me to draw closer to you with reverence. Allow me to see with a sense of joy, a lens of joy first, the things that you've already put in my life that maybe I've been overlooking, Lord, this entire time. Things that are blessings, things that are gifts, that maybe my flesh has been crying and thinking that I need to go after more. Lord, I just want to be content with the lot that you've put in my life. And Lord, I want to be content to where I don't focus on things of yesteryear, but just focus on the things that you've put in front of me today. Give me that ability and that gift to recognize and to see what it is that you've given me. If it be a spouse, if it be a family, if it be a job, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what it is that you've put in my life because it is a means of me to show glory to them, your love and your providence in my life. Lord, I pray for blessings over the people in this room as well. I pray for peace over them and throughout their week. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you, guys.